My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Depending on where you live in Canada, you may have noticed something missing at your grocery store recently. Empty shelves at the grocery store. Those in the industry are calling this the perfect storm. And depending on where you stand... You may have blamed anything from COVID to vaccine mandates to protesters to climate change to the federal government for the empty shelves that you've seen. Of course, you may not have even seen any empty shelves at all. And to you, the constant discussion of what you can't buy feels like another political ploy. Here is the truth. All of that is true. And all of it is being used as a political prop. Canada is a huge country with a long supply chain and all sorts of challenges, getting food exactly where it needs to go, exactly when it needs to get there. The slightest problem can create ripples in the supply chain. And we are talking about several rather large problems right now. So how precarious is Canada's food supply? How can we tell when empty shelves are a dangerous sign and when they're being used to score points? When can we expect the pressure on our supply chain to ease? And when it does, how much more will we be paying to put food on the table? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Sylvain Charlebois is the Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. He is the co-host of the Food Professor podcast, and you can find him on Twitter at foodprofessor. Hey, Sylvain. Good afternoon. Why don't you begin? Um, I'm kind of stumped by these pictures on both sides of the equation that I've been seeing recently. I'm sure a lot of Canadians are. Some of empty grocery shelves looking completely bare. Some of aisles overflowing with produce. Is there any way to determine the prevalence of empty shelves across Canada, aside from this kind of anecdotal evidence back and forth? Um, no, it's, 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 it's really not possible, uh, especially right now, if things are, are really messy with supply chains, uh, th- there, there is a combination of factors, uh, impacting the efficiency of supply chains right now. Uh, what we're seeing on social media are groups, uh, politicizing the issue of empty shelves, if you will, they're weaponizing, Uh, pictures with empty shelves. Uh, And that's unfortunate because it really will only uh, get people to to be concerned about food security and and they shouldn't. Um, I mean, there are several factors, I would say. I mean, an almost two-year-old pandemic will, will create supply chain fatigue. Mm-hmm. That's what we're seeing. And I, and frankly, I've been seeing empty shelves for months now in Canada. So this is not new. Uh, Omicron was a huge blow to the food industry. It's, it really slowed things down. Uh, 
there we saw strikes in in different companies uh, like Kellogg's, for example. Right. Uh, recalls of salads, the weather with snowstorms, uh, and of course the vaccine mandate. So the vaccine mandate at the border affecting truckers is one of many factors impacting uh, our supply chain right now. I'm going to get you to dig into those factors uh, in just a second. But first, since we can't um, determine how many shelves are empty or when they're restocked or all of that kind of stuff, and it is being so politicized, I will ask you as somebody uh, who studies the big picture of this, how do we go about assessing the health and capacity and functionality of our food supply chain? What do we look at? I mean, the, the, the one measurable outcome uh, is what you see at the grocery store, to be honest. <laughs> really? Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, you really want to see, um, you know, food, what type of food, where it's coming from, uh, the amounts, how it's displays in store merchandising. It, it really is an outcome that will tell you a lot. When I went in a grocery store, I actually can tell uh, a lot about the state of of our food economy, really, and depending of the the time of year, depending of where I am, uh, the the type of store as well, you can tell a lot. So take me through that process. Then you walk into a grocery store. What are you looking at? What does it tell you? Well, I mean, I look at uh, you know what's being what's what's for sale, what's being promoted right now, uh, at where it's located in the store. I look at store design. I look at how displays are positioned. I mean, I'm, I'm more focused on the economics of food distribution. So obviously, price is a big, big focus of mine when I go into a grocery store. I want to know because if something is on sale, there are a variety of reasons why something is on sale. Maybe there's there's too much inventory, or, or because uh, perishability is an issue, or I mean, perhaps it's because of an event of some sort, and people want it, like the Super Bowl is coming. So uh, I suspect that there mm-hmm. are going to be some sales of chicken wings uh, or or short even shortages because demand is going to go up. So there's lots of lots of things that can impact uh, either the supply or demand of a particular product. And I actually do think that in the future, the interaction between the two will become even more dynamic with, uh, say, it real-time price fixing. And this is something we're seeing more and more, like in Asia or Europe, if, you're, if you have too much inventory, for example, grocers will want to reduce the price of a product to get consumers to buy more of that product or vice versa. So there's, there's, there's more to it than just, you know, walking into a grocery store and just look around. (laughs) Right. Maybe you can take us through, um, you touched on them briefly, but I'm hoping you can go a, a little more in depth on, you know, the past several months and how things pile up. Obviously, since the beginning of the pandemic, I think we started with toilet paper uh, was the big one. And, and you know, things have been available and then not available. But yep. from my point of view anyway, uh, when we first started hearing about this latest wave, it was uh, during the floods in B.C., Um, when a lot of produce couldn't be trafficked out of the province and the highways were down. What has compounded since then and how much of an impact uh, did natural disasters play in it? What uh, what BC experienced the last few months is uh, is unbelievable. I mean, uh, if I suspect that people in BC have uh, more, have more of an appreciation for what supply 
chains are all about because <laughs> we've seen one miracle after another. We've seen the valley being impacted by floods. We've seen railways being destructed, uh, destructed by, by atmospheric rivers and, and the heat dome during the summer as well, which really impacted production as well. So there was lots going on uh, in, in your area for sure, disrupting supply chains. But when you deal with a, a natural disaster, uh, the impact is often temporary. What we're seeing right now is more of a well, I mean, I've talked about supply chain fatigue, uh, and what I mean, what I mean by that is that really, uh, you have the entire world coping with public health measures and people being sick, and and I think there's a bit of an underappreciation for how uh, COVID, the pandemic itself, ha has slowed things down. It, it's really complicated out there for for logistics companies because you have to deal with new measures, and and frankly. Every time there's a change in market conditions, uh, i.e. public health measures, it tends to take more time for companies to comply. And of course, it costs more money and it slows things down. And, uh, and so that's why, for example, to go back to the vaccine mandate uh, issue at the border affecting truckers, I think the last thing we want at this point, because it's done, is to actually have a reversal of mandates because, again, companies will operate on the basis that policy won't change a whole lot. But with COVID, it's been, it's been different. It's been very, very different and dynamic. So that's why... I suspect that most companies aren't necessarily pleased with the mandate at the border because it does complicate things, but you have to live with it. You have to work with it. And that's what we've seen the last, I'd say, two months since the decision was made back in November. What about that mandate? Do we know if it has contributed meaningfully uh, to empty shelves or can we just not differentiate it from you know so many other factors you've already spoken about? Uh, we can't say that it actually has had an impact on access, uh, food access, which is one of the three pillars uh, uh, to food security. So you have safety, access. Uh, safety is not an issue. Access, I don't think it is. It may actually be difficult for some companies to get ingredients or some products, and that's why you may actually see empty shelves here and there. But overall access won't be compromised. Uh, you will likely hear from companies saying that they can't get an ingredient here, an ingredient there on both sides of the border. But I think we should be okay. We're certainly concerned about affordability. Uh, mm -hmm. Freight costs right now in the U.S. Uh, for uh, Canadian-bound trucks uh, has risen by anywhere between 25% to 100%, depending on what you buy, where, where you're buying it, and where it's going. That will have an impact on on food prices eventually. It will catch up to consumers for sure. In terms of catching up to consumers, I went back and looked because I knew we'd spoken before, and we actually spoke uh, in early 2020, so uh, before the pandemic. And what we spoke about was that it was likely to be the highest year for grocery price increases in many years uh, since then. Just how bad has food inflation gotten? I know, and, and I'm I'm really curious about this because this is another thing that's been politicized, right? Like politicians have been taking pictures of what a typical breakfast looks like, and here's how much your various ingredients have gone up. Um, so I'm trying to understand it, you know, objectively. Uh, 
Yeah, and some of those pictures actually uh, have used some of our own data. <laughs> oh, yeah? So, oh, yeah, and absolutely. And I mean, food inflation is, is a problem, I think, right now in Canada, but it's also a problem in the United States as well. I mean, it's not just Canada. Right now, in the G7, they are three countries where – uh, the food inflation rate is is north of five percent. That would be the UK, uh, Canada, and 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 the United States, and mm. and all three are dealing with 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 a very different scenario. In Canada's case, um, it boils down to commodity prices, which impacts everyone around the world, but logistics as well. The the one thing that uh, that has helped us is the border. I mean, the, we are we are north of of the United States. Uh, we have access to uh, to a very strong food economy, but we're not immune to what goes on elsewhere and around the world. Transportation is costing more. It's really, and this is the the one argument that hasn't been argued a whole lot in the media of late is is predictability. Right. Predictability is gold for the food economy, and because of of the pandemic, market conditions have been anything but predictable mm-hmm. and uh so of course you got the natural disasters as you guys went through uh over the last uh, several months uh but uh, public health measures have been quite disruptive uh and that's why we're seeing waste across the supply chain we're seeing labor being a problem uh, a much larger problem than it was before the pandemic so those are things that really are problematic for the food industry and it tends to increase costs overall and that's why i'm not surprised that uh, food prices are going up and and i don't think we, we we've seen the end of it we are expecting food prices to continue to rise for quite some time My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. In terms of the protests that we were talking about in Ottawa, that was driven by, well, supposedly at least, uh, if you listen, depending on who you listen to, was driven by the mandates. There's another protest in the same vein going on right now uh, as we speak in Alberta. It may end soon, it may not, but it is a blockade at the border, and I gather it's a pretty big border crossing. What kind of impact could that have compared to the impacts of the, the mandates that they're protesting? Well, I was never comfortable with the convoy in the first place. I actually do believe that uh, we need to focus on not disrupting uh, food distribution. I foresaw, I guess, the convoy uh, creating bottlenecks, uh, traffic jams, <laughs> and and of course, it really impacted uh, the economy uh, in Ottawa downtown, uh, even mm-hmm. affecting some food banks as well. So that was heartbreaking to be honest, because those are the people that really need help and support. Uh, so I was very disappointed with, with that. Um, but of course the blockade at the border is, is quite concerning. I mean, uh, 
uh, I, I've, I've di- I did state a couple of times that uh, this, this, this convoy, this, these protests could become way more disruptive than, than, um, than vaccine mandates uh, themselves, really. And so the, that blockade in Alberta specifically uh, is blocking uh, the way for trucks with food on them right now going from Canada to the U.S. specifically. And uh, so there's beef and, and I believe there's pork and other ingredients, but many of these ingredients are, are going to be used to process food, to manufacture food, which Canada will eventually buy. Right. <laughs> so this could actually hit us and can and this could impact us eventually, notwithstanding the trucks that are on the U.S. side trying to come in that do have food already. So it's it's not great to see, uh, frankly. And I do believe that it's important to focus on on making sure that supply chains work perfectly. And right now, what I've seen the last, I'd say, five, six days, I, I don't think it's been helpful at all. Because if the goal here, and I don't think it is, but if the goal here <laughs> is to end the vaccinated at the border, because I think there's so many things that are being uh, recovered by all sorts of groups. But if, yes. if we focus on the vaccine mandate, I've always believed that uh, protesters uh, in Ottawa uh, have the wrong address. They sort of actually lobbied Washington because without a w- without reciprocity with the Americans, a, re- a reversal in Ottawa will w- wouldn't help. Right. You need both sides. And in America, I, I'm not seeing a whole lot of movement there right now. I'm, I'm, I'm only seeing, you know, a few truckers being concerned. But the, the thing about America, and about 125,000 truckers were impacted by the mandate in America. Uh, they have options. They can go to Mexico. They can go to other states. Mm-hmm. It's it's a huge market of 360 million people. Stakes are very different. Why do you think that a few photos of empty shelves? can make us so nervous. You know, to your point, it's not like stores are empty at all. You know, we're talking about some goods in some places being missing for a while, but it seems to feel like way more to us. Back in March of 2020, the uh, shortages were uh, demand-induced. Canadians may not know this, but it was really much about an entire sector shutting down restaurants. That demand, that's $90 billion worth of food, by the way, uh, that shifted overnight to retail. And of course, you saw the panic buying. So it, it was all about demand. Uh, and and things really got back to normal pretty quickly. I mean, within a couple of weeks, I guess. This time around, it's a bit different. Uh, it's, it's on the supply side that we're seeing some challenges. But both times, as someone who studies food distribution and policy, I... Uh, I, I often um, found myself explaining to Keynes how things work, how supply chains work, and why they shouldn't be worried. And I think it boils down to uh, this acute underappreciation for what uh, the food industry can do. I mean, let's face it, empty shells uh, are bad for business. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> the last yeah. thing grocers want are empty shelves. And they'll do everything, everything in their power to move things along the supply chain. If you throw at them a vaccine mandate, if you throw at them at atmospheric rivers, if you throw at them uh, strikes, uh, a snowstorm, they'll figure something out. 
They'll get food somehow because that's how they do business. And the last thing they want is to see consumers walking away from their stores mm-hmm. empty-handed. That's that's the economics. And economics are very, very powerful in food. When we covered the goods supply chain before Christmas, there was uh, quite a worry of you know Christmas presents not getting to people and shipping being delayed and, and all of that. One of the things that our guest told us back then is a lot of it had to do with just-in-time shipping, uh, which is you know trying to make sure you're not holding any extra inventory because that costs money. Is that also applicable in the food space, even with goods that have a relatively short shelf life like dairy or, or produce? Uh, I, I guess there are two schools of thought, uh, and I, I'm, I'm of the mind that, uh, the just in time model actually helps without it, it would have made things much worse. How so? Oh, it's just, it's, 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 it makes the supply chain way more efficient. Of course you'll run out, uh, you'll run out of things faster, but you can actually get stuff faster as well, uh, up and down the food chain. Uh, and so I, I know some people think, well, you can, you should store more in stores so you can replenish shells, but you'll end up wasting more too. Mm-hmm. Uh, because demand is grocers, uh, have to contend with, um, erratic consumers, <laughs> all of us, right? When you walk into a grocery store, everything you're buying it was planned, but a lot of the times you buy on impulse. You buy because of the weather. The weather itself will impact how people behave in a grocery store. If it's sunny out, people will think of a barbecue. And and if the forecast wasn't uh, giving us some sun, but it it is giving us some sun, all of a sudden you have to really shift things around for beverages, the meat counter, uh, chips. I mean, we don't realize that as consumers, but there's a lot of things that can happen. And if you store too much in the back, you could actually end up wasting way more, which could, again, push prices higher. Right. And that's why I'm a big believer in the just-in-time model because at the end of the day, it offers uh, good pricing to consumers. And, and fr- uh, frankly, especially right now, food affordability is super important. Speaking of food affordability, uh, the last question I have for you, I want you to look forward a bit. And I should note, uh, our producer, Steph, just told me that she bought a single red onion for $2.50 the other day, um, which we're in Toronto, but that's that's pretty ridiculous. What lessons would you have Canadians learn from supply chain, food inflation, everything everything that's happened over the past few months? And what should they take away from that and apply going forward? Well, I mean, for the next several months, uh, I think it would be unreasonable to expect perfection, <laughs> to be honest. Hmm. So, Fair. I mean, you you want you should expect. I, I've been seeing empty shelves for months, and and I think people should expect this to to continue to see see that. But uh, and I know that there are a lot of people out there saying, well, I mean, importing food is our problem, uh, and so therefore we need to produce everything we need. That's another dangerous road. I mean, we have an open economy in Canada. We are, we do sell a lot of food to the rest of the world, and we do create wealth uh, by capitalizing on trades as well. And I'm thinking of beef, pork, canola, wheat, uh, uh, potash. I mean, there's so much stuff we export that really creates jobs in this country, and we do wonderful things. Maybe not in processing, not as much. I think we should do more in processing. But generally speaking, 
uh, our op- open economy has served us well. Well, and what this is what I'm seeing right now with uh, with different provinces that there's been more attention given to food autonomy. So, and to me, f- f- more food autonomy for for province simply means to produce more of of things we're good at producing mm. and importing the rest. So, for example, let's say strawberries. Uh, Canadians love strawberries and they love to buy local strawberries. Well. What I'm seeing in some parts of the country are provinces that are trying to figure out ways to produce strawberries all year round using greenhouses, vertical farms. But at the same time, uh, we're, we have to be realistic. We're not going to start producing lemons and oranges and, and pineapples right. and bananas. I mean, they are, so, so becoming more strategic about things we can do well and import the rest uh, I think is actually a great path forward. And that's kind of what I'm seeing right now across the country. Sylvain, thank you so much for this. Uh, really insightful. And I feel like I understand what I'm seeing in the grocery store a lot better. <laughs> All right. Take care. Sylvain Charlebois of Dalhousie University, co-host of the Food Professor podcast, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts, just like you can find this one at thebigstorypodcast.ca Talk to us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. Email us anytime, TheBigStoryPodcast, all one word, at rci.rogers.com. You can get this podcast anywhere you get them. You can like and rate and subscribe and follow and review and tell a friend and anything that helps us get the word out. You might soon be able to find us on YouTube as well, though I will never consent to a video podcast. Mm, This face, it's not for television. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.